This is Ephesians 3:14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So one day I googled the 100 largest churches in America, and obviously it's by attendance. And I uh, had a lot of fun going through the list. I've been to a lot of the churches. I know some of the pastors. There's a few Calvaries on the list. And it was just wonderful to see what God had done all around the country and the different styles of worship. Uh, but what puzzled me was that what followed that was the 100 fastest-growing churches in America, and I kind of scratched my head because if there's anything I know about the Bible, the metaphor for growth, the supreme metaphor is seed, and how does seed grow? Slow, right? Seed grows slow. My dad was a, a landscaper, and so this time of year people would want new lawns, and we would go out, and you know, we'd rototill their old lawn, and then we'd plant seed, it would be an all-day job, and he would charge us like $500.00. And it was strange because these people, you know how you're excited to get your house painted or something built? Well, these people would come home and they would see nothing. You know, we would lime it just so it looked white like we did something. But the idea was it would have to grow, right? It would take weeks and months. Now, you could sod it. and There's probably a whole lesson there, but we won't get into that right now. But, but when I looked at this idea of fast growth and I looked at what the Bible says about growth, I thought back to a parable then anytime I have a chance to talk to church leaders or young church leaders, uh, I always read this parable. It's Mark 4.26. You don't need to go there. I'll put it on the screen. And uh, the reason it's overlooked, it's overshadowed by a more familiar parable called the parable of the sower. Jesus, when he taught that parable, said if you couldn't understand that parable, you couldn't understand all the parables. And basically he talked about how the kingdom of God worked. That he was the sower and seed would be scattered on the hearts. The soil were the hearts of human beings. And so there's some people where you tell them about the gospel and they might be interested. And the next day it's the last thing on their mind. They're hard ground. Then there's thorns and thistles and weeds. And it goes, the list goes down and down. And finally you find a receptive heart. And the reason you know it's receptive is because the seed goes into that heart, into that soil, and it produces 30, 60, and 100 fold. Jesus said, you will know they are my disciples by their fruit. And so that parable is very powerful. It makes a lot of sense. But then Jesus tells this small, obscure parable where he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, and he should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow, and he does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately the man, he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Now, this parable is a little different as it talks about growth, 
Because unlike the first parable, we are the sowers. And hopefully you're sowing seed, right? Uh, we are the instrument in this world. We're going into all the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Uh, as believers, hopefully we are sharing Christ with people. We are sowing seed. That's our job. But what you find in this parable is that growth, or how seed grows, is God's job. Uh, notice how the growth is slow. The man rises by day, he sleeps by night. It takes a while. First he gets the blade, then the head, then the full grain, and then he puts the sickle in. Uh, Here's what I tell church leaders, verse 27. He knows not how. And this amazes me because almost every conference you go to is a church growth conference where they're going to tell you how to grow a large church, how to grow a church fast, and yet here... He knows not how. Scientists don't even know how. The seed is still one of the most amazing things on the planet. And I am so honored when I read these parables that we as a church for 22 years have had slow, consistent growth. We've grown every year very slowly. In fact, I wanted to pick up the phone and say, hey, if there's a list out there for the 100 slowest growing churches in America, I think we could be on that list. Okay? Healthy things grow. Your kids grow. Hopefully you're growing spiritually. Healthy churches grow. Now, I think they should grow in attendance. That's one metric. I love what I read one time. Someone said you don't measure the effectiveness of an army by how many people sit in the mess hall, but by how many people are on the front lines. So when I put my finger in the air and I look at how we're growing, it's not how many people are sitting here, but how many people are out there telling their friends about Christ, how many people are going on missions trips, how many people are serving, and I see a lot of that going on around here, and it really blesses my heart. Um, what I have come to understand and what I know is that every pastor worth his salt, the reason he got in the church work is he wanted to answer the question, are people growing? That's why we do this. We want to see people grow. We realize the potential. When somebody gives their life to Christ, we realize that potential is amazing, what they can do for the kingdom, what their life can be. When people realize why they were put on this planet, they realize their gifts, and they begin to step out, and they fellowship, it is amazing what God can do, and that's why we're here. And this was Paul's agenda. One of the overlooked things in Paul's epistles is how much of the time he's praying For the people in the churches that he began. Now we overlook it because we think they're greetings or salutations. This is Paul's heart. He said to the Galatians, I labor again and again that Christ would be formed in you. And here he prays for the Ephesians. And and he talks about the whole family of God. So he's praying for more than the Ephesians. He's praying for you and me and for all generations. And it reminds me of Pastor Chuck Smith who started Calvary Chapel. Chuck was a praying pastor. And I remember Chuck sharing with us one time, the most important thing we can do for any other human being is to pray for them. Uh, when I experienced my burnout, I was out of ministry for four months. And there were a group of people, my wife was one of them, that's how I know, who got on a conference call every day at 7 a.m. an entire year and prayed for me. You know what that feels like to know that people are praying for you every single day? When I pray for you, there's faces that come to my mind. Sometimes I don't even know the names. Sometimes names come to my mind. Sometimes ministries come to my mind. I pray for people who have no idea I'm praying for them. You're praying for people who have no idea uh, that you're praying for them. And it's one of the most beautiful things we can do for anyone. And Paul prays for the Ephesians. 
Now, last week I gave you an outline from Watchman Nee's book of the book of Ephesians because it's the easiest one. It's sit, walk, and stand. And by the way, if you're new at Calvary, that's my advice. Uh, people come here and say, Pastor Bob, what can I do? And the first thing I say is sit for a while. Let the word of God wash over you. Let, let God build you up by hearing the word. Then the word will push you out and you'll begin your walk. You'll begin doing what you were meant to do here. And then we're all called to stand against the evil one. We'll talk about spiritual warfare at the end. Christians get this backwards. They're so filled with zeal. And in some churches they let novices run out. When they've never sat and figured out who they are in Christ, they're out walking and running. And often they kind of fall flat on their face. Paul's M.O., and and I think it's the right motivation, is that it's more important to tell people who they are first before you tell them what they can do. It's more important to tell them who they are in Christ. He spent the entire first two chapters saying, look, sit a while, listen to this. You have a spiritual bank account in heaven. It's rich, it's deep. You've been saved by grace while you were yet a sinner. Christ loved you. You were not Jewish. You were not part of this community. You didn't, you weren't circumcised. You didn't know the things of God or the covenants or the plans of God. And somehow in God's mysterious way, He's made Jew and Gentile one. And we are now the family of God. There's no racial divisions. There's, there's no divisions at all. And He lays all this stuff on the Ephesian believers. And then all of a sudden, Paul gets so caught up in this himself, he drops his quill. And he said, I bow my knees. It moves him to prayer. Now, I don't know if Paul literally got on his knees. He was probably chained to a Roman guard. And if he was, that's interesting. They had to listen to Paul pray. Uh, sometimes kneeling is the posture of prayer. Sometimes standing. You know, uh, David stood while he prayed. Solomon stood. Abraham stood. Jesus prostrated himself. Some people sat. I like to walk when I pray. It's not... It's not so much the posture, it's the humility. I bow my knee. When I think of all that God has done, it moves me towards humility, Paul said. It moves me towards adoration. And there's no doubt in my mind, as Paul was under house arrest writing to the Ephesians, that he thought of his own experience with Christ on the Damascus Road. He was full of pride. He was full of zeal. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee concerning the law, blameless. He had the right resume. He had done all the right things. He was pompous. He was killing Christians. And someone that God should have judged instead, instead the love of God, blinded him on that Damascus Road. And Paul was never the same man. God covered his sin and made him the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul never figured this out. And later he would write, I have, I have still not comprehended that which has apprehended me. I'm still blown away, literally, Paul said, by the idea that God would even allow me to be a part of his kingdom, yet use me in a powerful way. And he gets on his knees and he begins to pray for others. He's in a prison cell and he's praying for these Ephesian believers. Now, we pray for you guys a lot. We have staff chapel, we have staff meetings, we pray for you guys. And whenever you get in a group of people and you say, okay, we want to pray, uh, the first thing the group says is, we should pray for marriages. Marriages in our church are struggling, it's hard in this culture to be married. So we go to the whiteboard and we write, okay, let's pray for marriages. What else should we pray for? Let's, let's pray for finances. People are struggling, people are out of work. Okay, right on the whiteboard, pray for finances. Got to pray for missionaries, they're on the front line. Pray for the lost, you know we go down this list, it's almost the same list every time we pray. Paul, when he prays for the Ephesians, 
doesn't pray for any of this. Now think about it. Ephesus was a wicked place. You know, they could have prayed for overthrowing the Roman government. They could have prayed for marriages. Certainly they were probably struggling in Ephesus. They don't pray for any of these felt needs. Instead, Paul prays four specific things that I'm convinced would make people grow. And if people grew, their marriages would be better, their finances would be better, there would be more missionaries. In fact, when we go through these four things, if each of us took four people in our sphere of influence, prayed for a year that these things would happen in our lives, I think we would grow to the point as believers where people would be beating the doors down to get in here. So let's go through the prayer. By the way, he's praying this for us. He talks about the entire family of God. And here's the four things Paul prays for you. And and this is a wise man, so I would take heed. Number one, he prays for longevity. Look at verse 16. He prays that Christ would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Now, the Christian life is long and it's arduous. If anybody's told you different, they've lied to you. It's a journey. C.S. Lewis said it's like a journey with a series of stops and ends along the way. You don't know where your journey's taking you. But here's what I know. If you follow Christ long enough, you're going to go through what I call the seasons of your Christian experience. Now, they're not chronological. They're not by age. They can come at any time. There's always the spring of your experience. Now, certainly that's what it's like when you when you get saved. Everything's brand new. But I think you can be a Christian for 20 years and, and feel the spring experience. Like, you know, it's winter now, but in a few weeks the, the buds are going to be out on the trees and things are going to grow again. And it's a beautiful picture of resurrection. And sometimes you catch a second wind and God's doing something new and you're excited and you're the spring of your Christian experience. Um, sometimes you're in the summer of your Christian experience. Nothing's going great, nothing's going bad, things are just kind of humming along. And then we all hit what I call the, the fall experience, where things are changing. You know, for Isaiah, you know, King Uzziah died, the only king he had ever known for 40 years. Sometimes we change churches, we change jobs, our kids move away, and, and we get into this funky feeling where things are changing and it's uncomfortable. And then we're all going to go through the winter of our Christian experience where things don't turn out the way we plan. We lose the ones we love and we question some of the early beliefs that we had. I personally know so many Christians. We got saved in the 80s and we were part of this church and it was fledgling and we were, we were serving on youth teams and worship and, and it was the era of prophecy and we were reading how Lindsay and we thought the end of the world was coming and Jesus was coming and, and it was wonderful. And so many of those people are still tracking with God. Too many of them that I know are either shipwrecked or out of the game. And young people, you need to listen to this. When I, when I, when I look at these people, I am convinced they never paid attention to their inner world. They had tied their Christianity to circumstances, what God was supposed to do, what he was going to do, whether it was their work preference, how they were valued by people, whether it was prosperity or marriage. They really never were strengthened in the inner man. And Paul said, there is a new man in you. We were born again, not of incorruptible seed, but not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed, the word of God that lives and abides forever. You became spiritually alive when you accepted Christ. 
your new man has new desires. One of the desires is to sit here and listen to me. Some of you never believed you'd be in church 10 years ago. Or listen to praise music or sermons or read the Bible. But there's a new man and the new man, the Bible says the outward man is perishing. This new man can go stronger and stronger every year. Uh, Wednesday we started the book of Daniel. And I share with everybody that came out that, you know, the last place Daniel ever expected to wind up was in Babylon. He was one of the best and brightest of Israel. He had his future quite predictable before him. And he winds up at 16 in a foreign land, speaking a foreign language where they worship foreign gods. And he would give the greatest years of his life to a foreign king. And yet as a 16-year-old, there was enough built into him, maybe by his parents, maybe by the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The you know, scripture doesn't tell us. But not only did Daniel survive, but he thrived in Babylon. His gift rate made room for him. He, he rose to prominence there. And I share with the people Wednesday night, we live in Babylon. Babylon's code for the world. That's where we live. And the world has different values than we have. One of the values they have is the outward man. Now, I belong to a gym. My wife belongs to a gym. Everybody I know belongs to a gym. When I was a kid, I grew up in Philadelphia in a row home. We had one kid in the neighborhood, Rich Gatton, he went on to play for the Raiders, a really good friend of mine. Um, every day at 1 o'clock, he'd say, guys, i got to go. Where are you going? I'm going to the gym. What's that? Like, his dad was a lawyer. We didn't even know what a gym. To, to us, a gym was a basketball gym, not a workout place. Now, everybody belongs to a gym. You know, you can't, you can't go to any food shopping place without reading magazines about your heart. What's good for your heart, what's bad for your heart. There's so much we hear about our heart. I get anxiety over what could happen to my heart, which probably is bad for my heart. And then there's all the organic food we have to eat, farm the table, all this stuff. And what really gets me is the drug ads. We never saw drug ads before. And I'm a dinosaur. I still watch world news. And all the commercials of world news are drug ads. And first they tell you all the symptoms, and you're like, yeah, my legs tingle every once in a while, and I feel out of breath, and maybe I'm in heart failure. Maybe I'm, I'm you know, th- this is terrible. And then they start telling you all the side effects. And by the time at the end of the news, you watched all this bad stuff happening around the world, and all the bad stuff that could happen to you. And it's because everybody's worried about the outer man in our culture. The Bible says... Bodily exercise profits little. And some of you are like, yes, there's finally a verse I can live by. Now, it doesn't say it doesn't profit at all. It says it profits little. Like Gary Haugen said that one time where you need the jam jar open, you get one of these guys with the big biceps to open the jam jar, it profits a little. And look, I'm being facetious. I want you guys to be healthy. I want you to be wise with your body. But Paul said there's a new man with new desires. The inner man is the man of the heart, the soulless realm. It's the seat of your affections, your passions, your emotions. It's the place where you're developing your will. It's very important. Now, Paul said he prayed that you would be strengthened by might in the inner man. So he brings up a dynamic here that I I think is often overlooked. And that's the dynamic of the Holy Spirit. When he says that that you would have might, your translation might say power, that's the Greek word dunamis. When Jesus told the disciples, wait here and tarry and you will receive dunamis, power, where we get dynamic or dynamite. 
when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit does not bring attention to himself. He comes alongside. And, you know, I'm going to teach on this in September because I think the, the view of the Holy Spirit's all over the place. You know, we think the Holy Spirit is like goosebumps or, you know, it's some, you know, esoteric thing. And, and, and there are the gifts of the Spirit. Those things do exist. But, but mainly the work of the Spirit is to illuminate the things of God and make them real to us. For instance, one of the beautiful things about becoming a Christian is we renew our minds. Now, the Eastern idea is to empty your mind. Like, sit there and empty your mind, which is ridiculous. The Bible says, no, renew your mind. Let it align with the things of God, the washing of the water of the Word. The Holy Spirit searchlight can illuminate your mind when you read the Scriptures, when you read great books. It gives you a worldview and attributes and absolutes to live by. It's what made Daniel the man that he was. The Holy Spirit gets into your heart. It makes us more loving, more merciful, more compassionate, more concerned about justice. The Holy Spirit goes between joint and marrow, spirit and soul. He gets into the crevices of our heart and begins to deal with things that we've repressed for such a long time. I've been married to my wife for 31 years. She's the closest person to me. We got saved on the same day, filled with the Spirit on the same day. She was beautiful then, she's beautiful now, but we're aging. But what is remarkable to me is I've had a front row seat to see a woman who, though the outward is perishing, inwardly she's becoming this beautiful woman of God. And that's God's goal for us. That's Paul's prayer, that inwardly you would be growing year by year. Second thing he prays for is intimacy. Look at verse 17, very easy to overlook. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Wow, that sounds cliche, right? Pray that Christ would dwell in your heart through faith. When I hear people describe me behind my back, I kind of chuckle. Because they'll say, you know, Pastor Bob's approach to God is intellectual. And the reason I laugh is if anybody who knew me when I was young or a teenager in my 20s, if they ever heard that, they would like belly laugh. Now, I love to read and I love to debate. And I love, I'm very curious about life. But I am a whole lot more mystical than you guys think. From the day I got saved, I was overwhelmed with this idea that you could know God. I really was. You know, for 21 years I sat, stood, and knelt. And I thought, if there is a God, he's got to be bigger than this. He's got to be known. I mean, if you could know about Bruce Lee and you two and football players, you could certainly know about God. And my lifelong quest has been to know him. Um, I look at this word here, to dwell. It means to settle down, to abide, to make it home. Last week I talked about Solomon when he dedicated the temple. He said, Lord, the heavens of the heavens, the universe can't contain you, let alone this house. And, and what really has driven me for 30-some years is the idea that a God who's bigger than the universe also is knocking on the door of my heart to come and dwell with me. I've never gotten over that. I've never gotten over the idea that I feel like sometimes it's just me and God and then there's other times where I feel like God's running the universe. It's, it's the strangest thing to me. But it says here that Christ can dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, you know, my true friends, when they come over, I don't clean before they come. 
When they come, sometimes I fall asleep and they do something else while they're there until I wake up. Some of them, uh, when they stay over, they like, I'm in the back room, right? Yeah, and help themselves to the refrigerator. I mean, they, they feel comfortable dwelling there. Other places you go, and the furniture's so nice, and, and everything's done so well, you almost don't even feel at home. Does Christ feel at home in your heart? And the gateway to Christ dwelling in your heart is prayer. Now, it's not like the heathens do. It's not rote prayers. Prayer is talking to God. People can make you feel really guilty about this. You can't know someone that you don't talk to. So for some of you, you need to get your feet wet in prayer. And it's not long prayers like the Pharisees. It's not, it, don't go out and read one of these books about somebody who prayed out eight hours a day. Just start talking to God. Read the scriptures, talk to God, read the scriptures. I like to walk and pray. I like to drive and pray. I don't listen to anything when I'm driving. I like to hear the silence. I like to hear God speak to me. When you dwell with someone and you talk about them, you talk a lot about them. Uh, I can't go long talking to a guy. You know, we'll talk about politics, sports, life, kids. But sooner or later, it always comes back to God. Christ dwells in me. And because he dwells in me and the Holy Spirit is illuminating these things, you know, he's weeding out through the cracks and crevices, the dark places, the drafty rooms, the, the, the dark corners of my life, the, the things I've repressed. And, and let me tell you this, if you're young, you probably think, oh, by the time Pastor Bob's age, I'll have all this figured out. No, you'll just get started. Because at 53, you're thinking, oh my gosh, how was I raised? How did I raise my kids? You know, what are the things I've repressed? And I'm not talking about healing in the memories and staring at your navel. I'm just saying the Holy Spirit will not let you stay the way you are. We're all repressing stuff. We're all pushing stuff down. We're, we're men are afraid to be vulnerable. And the more Christ dwells in my heart, the more I realize my humanness, my fallenness. Because he's God and I'm not. And I realize this is the intimacy that when he, when he comes into my heart, when he dwells, I understand his love. And I understand everything that's been part of my life. And he's put it all together. The third thing Paul prays for is that as we serve Christ, we'd have the proper motivation. Verse 17 says that we will be rooted and grounded in love. The soil that the seed of the word of God grows is in love. You know, sometimes you'll hear me in a self-deprecating way say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be on the last row. And I really mean that sometimes. And, the, and, the, and look, I know I'm going on by grace. You know, there's a seat reserved for me, even though I don't deserve it. But the reason I feel like I'm going to be in the back row is every time I read 1 Corinthians 13. Paul said, if I pray with the tongues of men or angels, but have not love, I'm a clanging symbol. And I think, geez, I pray in tongues, and I, I speak a lot with the men, you know, in English to all you guys, probably more than most people. And gosh, if, if my motivation is not love, you know, this is all for naught. You know, all my generosity, Paul said, is for nothing if I don't do it out of love. If, if it's for a tax return or if I'm looking to get something back, then I'm nothing. And I can have all these gifts and the list goes on and on. And, and then you get to the hard part about what love is. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. And, and, you know, and then there's people that say, oh, what you should do is, you know, take out the word love and insert your name. And then it gets worse. But... Thank God there's the end of the chapter where it says, now we see through a glass dimly and then we see face to face. I think what Paul was saying, look, nobody's ever loved this way. 
And if there was anybody that loved this way, we'd all be following them. But the one we're following is Christ. And one day, we're not, you know, these blinders are going to be taken off. We're going to see love in a way that's indescribable. And we get a taste of it now. And again, I, I just think the motivation of our hearts, we have to constantly check our hearts. God, am I doing this in love? Am I doing this for the right reason? And then finally, and this is where it all comes together, and there's not a commentator who understands these verses. Aren't you glad? Because if they understood, God wouldn't be God. At least 11 commentators I've read. No one. They all bypass it. I'm going to give it a shot. All right? Paul's final prayer is that you would maximize your redemptive potential. All that you were saved for. Verse 18. That you might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. How many people want to know the fullness of God? Yeah, you all do, right? Now, I don't know what the heck is going on here. I really don't. And math isn't my strongest suit, and neither is physics, but I'm going to give this a shot. Uh, Paul here says that to know Christ, it has to pass our understanding. And so you just can't memorize the Bible and know Christ. You just can't go to seminars or go to church and know Christ. It doesn't work that way. Uh, it talks about an intimacy here. The word gnoskos means to know by experience. There, there's a depth. There's a walk. It's why Jacob wrestled with God. Uh, and, and he said, and he held on to him. He said, I'm going to hold on to you. Bless me. That, that's what Paul says here to comprehend. It's to grab somebody's cloak. Look, I'm going to hold on until I know. To grab, literally, is what it means. It's why Abraham bartered with God and David danced. You know, he wasn't naked, but, he, you know, he had an ephod on. It, it, it's why so many people have done what they've done. is because they wanted to grab hold. You know, Moses said, Lord, I want to see your glory. God said, you can't see my glory. So he hit him in the crevice of a mountain. He saw the afterglow. But what Paul uses here, and, and, and listen, Paul was brilliant, but I don't even think he understood it. He said the width, length, height, and depth. So we all understand two dimensions, right? That's length and width. Third dimension, you understand that because you go to 3D movies, right? Now, a box is three dimensions, right? Uh, and, and I think that's interesting, you know, a, a box, because I saw a Simpsons cartoon one time, and uh, Homer Simpson standing on one side, and on the other side there's a bunch of guys with hammers, and they're building a building. And he said, hey, what are you all doing here? And, he said, and they said, uh, we're building a house for God. And he said, you know, I don't know a lot about God, but you surely are building him a nice cage. And I thought, how insightful. That's what human beings are. We're cage builders. We box God in. But you know what Paul does here? He moves to the fourth dimension. Now, I don't know if he even knew this or understood it, but he moves outside the space-time continuum. Now, I don't know a lot about this. I tried to look it up. I tried to understand it. My brain hurt. Uh, maybe some of you understand it better. By the way, most of the movies you're seeing now talk about this. If you, if you saw Interstellar, you know, Matthew McConaughey goes out into space. He's in a black hole, and he's able to communicate to his daughter uh, through a bookshelf. It's unbelievable, but the world is caught on this idea with black holes and, and the breaking of the space time they know there's a fourth dimension 
But guess what? We know there's one too. That's why Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What Paul was saying is that to know God at the highest level moves into the eternal. And that's why right now we see with a glass dimly, we will always we will always see God in a way that's far below who he is. But John said this was eternal life, that you would know him. And one day we're going to be known as, you know, we're going to know him as, as he knows us. One day we're going to look at him. Blessed are the pure in heart, they're going to see God. And the space-time continuum will be broken. Basically what Paul's saying, whether he knew it or not, was that your relationship to God should never be boring. It should never get old. For the rest of your life, you are plumbing four dimensions because the person of Christ is that awesome. That's exciting. The idea that we figure God out is ridiculous. I wake up every day, Lord, you know, the service begins. What what do you have for us today, God? What are we learning about who you are and your character? John MacArthur was on a stage one day with a panel of great Bible teachers. They said, John, you've been in ministry for 50 years. You're one of the greatest theologians in the world. What's the greatest thing you've learned in 50 years? And this is what he said. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. In Christ Jesus we are strong. And what he was saying is what Paul said, I have yet to comprehend that which is apprehended me. I still don't get it. I'm still trying to figure this out. What if each and every one of us took four people for one year and prayed this prayer over them? God, these four people in my life, I want them to be strengthened in their inner man. I want them to maximize their potential. I want Christ to dwell in their hearts. What if instead of gossiping, We prayed these prayers. Our church would grow. Because we would grow. And that's the goal. God wants us to grow. He wants us to grow. Growth is slow. And and he prunes us back. And and sometimes he corrects us. And it's not pleasurable when it's season. But this is the church we can be. This is the church Paul prayed that we could be. And he ends with these glorious Words Now to him who was able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the churches by Christ Jesus to the generations forever and ever. Amen. If you've ever been in some churches, this is one of these phrases they throw aloud a lot. You know, uh, now to him is able to give, to give you more than you're able to think or ask. Yes. I want this job, but God's going to be a better job because he can give me all the... No. God wants you to grow. He wants you to grow beyond where you think you can grow. Listen, you grow in these four things, everything will take care of itself. You get strengthened in the inner man. You, you, Christ dwells in your heart. Everything, your marriage, your career, where you serve, it'll all take care of itself. And this prayer worked because the church changed the course of Western civilization. We are the byproduct of that. And the love of God is still the greatest and most powerful thing on the planet.